Uh, our scripture reading today uh, is, uh, our scripture reader is Joe Haystack, and our passage is Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. In honor of God's word, please stand. Listen as I read. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joe. Okay, so we are uh, in this, uh, been in a series for a while now called The Story of Stories. And uh, next Sunday, we are starting uh, a new series called, uh, it's, it's our vision series, and, uh, and we'll be talking, uh, obviously, about that in the weeks to come. But uh, this, this Sunday is the second to last uh, chapter of the story of stories. We are going to do the final chapter of this series, uh, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, November 20th, and we will conclude this series. Um, so over the last couple of weeks, you know, we, we, had, we had been, over the summer and early fall, we had been tracking this grand story that the Bible is inviting us into, a story that started in Genesis chapter 1 uh, with a promise that God was going to send someone who would crush Satan. And there's a line and a lineage by which this, this one is going to come. And time and time again throughout the Old Testament, all of maybe these little stories that you've heard here or there, and you might have thought of them as, as isolated stories or as like siloed stories, all of those stories are revealing how God was at work to preserve this promise, to preserve this lineage where this one who was promised to come, who could crush Satan and reconcile the world, rescue the world back to God after the destruction of sin in Genesis chapter 3. All of the Old Testament is pointing forward and, and revealing how God is at work to keep his promise. Well, a few weeks ago, we saw that that promise actually was met and fulfilled in this person uh, that we call Jesus, uh, the Son of God come to earth, living among us, uh, lived a perfect life, uh, and then he was unjustly uh, crucified. He was murdered on a cross, buried. But then three days later, he, he rose again. And when he did, the Bible says that when Jesus rose again, that he conquered sin and Satan and all of our enemies. And he kept the promise from Genesis chapter 3. When sin came in and broke the world and broke man's relationship with God, God said, I'm sending somebody. I'm going to fix this. And then there we are, thousands of years later, Jesus uh, keeping that promise and actually providing the way for us and eventually the whole world to be restored to God. And so we saw the one finally come that could and did crush Satan. Well, then last week, we saw that it even gets better. And sometimes it's like, it doesn't feel like it could get better. And, it, and yeah, I, I, would, I would resonate with that. The gospel is such good news. And the resurrection of Jesus is so phenomenal. But Jesus himself says, I got to tell you guys something. He looks at his followers and he says, it's good that I go because if I go, I'm going to send you help. I'm going to send something to you. And last week, uh, we got to see that Jesus sent uh, the Holy Spirit, 
to, to not just show up on earth, but to actually dwell in the hearts of his people. And we realized last week that as, as, as countercultural as it might seem, Jesus, the, the spirit inside us is better than Jesus beside us. And that's, that's hard for us to think. We, we might want to be like, I wish Jesus could walk around with me. Well, I, I, I understand why you might say that. But Jesus actually says the spirit in you is even more significant than that because the spirit inside of you is actually what gives you spiritual life. And so last Sunday, we got to consider the reality of the spirit of God indwelling his people, giving them new spiritual life, teaching them, comforting them, convicting them, all the work that the spirit of God uh, does in the lives of those who've turned to Jesus. Well, today we find out what God's plan is for the work of the Spirit in his people. And it's, it's actually, it's called the church. And so if you're tracing the, the, the flow here, there's all of these Old Testament events and all of these Old Testament realities that point forward to this promise that one would come and reconcile man and the world to God. Jesus shows up and he is the answer to those promises. Jesus then sends his Spirit and his Spirit fills his people and his people are called the church. And so that's what we're going to look at today. I want to start off by looking at the church's task. And it's going to have some overlap with what I just said. Uh, Jesus shows up on the earth. He lives a perfect life. He dies, rises again. He spends 40 days hanging out with his followers. And then he goes back to the Father in, in, in heaven. But I don't want us to miss the directions that Jesus gave his people before Jesus ascended back to the Father. The Bible reveals a mission. And this is what Jesus wanted to communicate before he went back to the Father. There's an author named Christopher Wright, and this is what he says. The whole Bible is itself a missional phenomenon. The writings that now comprise our Bible are themselves the product of and witness to the ultimate mission of God. The Bible renders to us the story of God's mission through God's people in their engagement with God's world for the sake of the whole of God's creation. Mission is not just one of a list of things that the Bible happens to talk about. Mission is what it's all about. That's what Christopher Wright has to say. And as you think about various passages in the Bible, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So if you turn to Acts chapter 2, it's just one page back. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus looks at his followers and he says, I want you to be my witnesses here and everywhere. I want you to take this good news about what I've done and I want you to spread it around the globe. The other passage that references Jesus' final words is in Matthew 28. And we know that as the Great Commission. And Jesus stands with his followers, and Matthew says that Jesus looks at his followers, and he says, all authority has been given to me, now I'm going to give you a mission. Go into all the world and tell them this news. Tell them the gospel, and then baptize them and teach them everything I taught you. So take this gospel and go. Take this gospel and, and take it around the world. And as we said last week, you know, Jesus was standing somewhere when he said that. He was standing in Jerusalem, which is thousands of miles from here. And when you see Jesus say, take that gospel to the ends of the earth, the fact that the gospel's here means that it, it, we're the ends of the earth. The gospel's made it here. We've heard the gospel. And it's an incredible fulfillment of what Jesus asked his people to do. 
Jesus wants this good news to change the world, and he has a people to pursue that goal. But Christopher Wright, who I just quoted a second ago, this this is also what, what he says. He says, it's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church as that God has a church for his mission. Yeah, like, in other words, mission was not made for the church. The church was made for the mission, for, for God's mission. Our, our mission is nothing less and actually nothing more than participating with God in this grand story until he brings it to its uh, guaranteed climax. So when we think about this mission, it's this beautiful recognition that God, God had this mission. It's been the mission all along. And then when God raises up his church, he says, guess what? I got news. This church is, is raised up to be part of my mission. So he doesn't have a mission for the church. He has a church for the mission, this call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and now to take it to those who have still not heard. The task of the church is to be people who are fully committed to following Jesus and who help others follow him too. But... Please don't miss that Jesus told his, his followers not to go yet. As grand and as beautiful as this mission is, Jesus looks at his followers and he says, here we are in Jerusalem. I want you to take it to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. I want this gospel to fill the whole earth, but not yet. Wait, that's what he says in Acts chapter one. He says, don't do it yet. Here's this grand, grand mission that God has been at work on. Now he's raised up a people and Jesus says, hang on. You're not ready for it. This is the mission, but you're not ready for it yet. I want you to wait here until, until what? Until I send you help. And what was that help? Well, the better way to say that is who was that help? And that help was the spirit of the living God that came from heaven and then pierced right into the hearts of everyone who believed that Christ was their savior and Lord. And when the Spirit shows up, the Spirit empowers his people. The Spirit gives God's people life. Now they're ready for the mission. Once the Spirit shows up, now it's go time. Now now it's time. Now we're equipped. Now the people of God can actually pursue this mission that God has for the world, but not before the Spirit. You know, there's, there's, there's a right way to understand this. Jesus' followers, they're, they're, they're scared to death. They're, they're running around. They're not sure what's going on. Jesus ascends, and then the Spirit comes. And if you read the rest of the book of Acts, these guys turn into lions. They, they are running around, and they are preaching in front of kings. They're risking their life. Something dramatically changed. And I think the Bible's case is that the Spirit of God came into them. And this this news about who Jesus was, Jesus conquering sin and Satan and death, it was all brought to life through the work spirit in their heart. And off they went on this grand mission. The indwelling spirit of God changed Jesus' followers from the inside out. You know, last week we said that as you read about the coming of the spirit, it comes from outside of them. It says from heaven, but then it went right into their hearts right inside of them, and it equipped them to go on mission. And I want us to, to, to hold on to this the whole morning, I, for your whole life, actually, this concept that Christianity is from the inside out, only after the Spirit came into their hearts were they ready to go on mission. You see, the gospel produces new life 
as we are reconnected with God who created us through Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Gives us a new heart. It gives us a new way of seeing the world. The Spirit of God comes into us and makes us alive by reconnecting us to the God who created us. Gives us a new way of seeing the world. Maybe you've heard the term a world view. I actually think that the gospel is our worldview. When we look out, the gospel is a set of facts, but the gospel is also like a set of lenses. It changes how you see what you see. It shades the reality that we actually experience. It clears up what is going on around us. It gives explanation to why the world is the way it is. And we've said before, why don't things work out? Why, why do so many things go sideways? People's best intentions. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know what you think about Mark Zuckerberg, but Mark Zuckerberg was like, what if we created an online platform where people could connect with friends that have moved away from them and they could send messages anytime and you could know when everyone's birthday is all the time. All, all the, and then it, it just goes terribly wrong. Like, what happened to Facebook? I'll tell you what happened to Facebook. The world's broken. Sin broke the world. And, and someone could have the best motivations in the world. Let's create a platform where people just connect. And it goes toxic. It's, it's, not, the, it's not the code's fault. Not first and foremost. It's evidence that the world is broken. And the gospel helps us recognize that. It helps us actually fight the real problem instead of fighting people. We can fight the problem, not the people. The, the, the gospel gives us eyes to see that. One of my favorite ways to think about this, this new sight that the Spirit of God produces is this, this uh, illustration we've used here before. But if you were to think about this, um, each stage of life has a, has a greater sense of reality. So what, what is the difference between a rock and a plant? Well, a plant has a greater sense of reality. Uh, a plant can sense hot and cold. A plant can sense uh, wet and dry. A rock can't sense any of those things, okay? Then what's the difference between an animal and a plant? An animal can sense hot and cold, can sense wet and dry, but an animal can also sense danger. Uh, you know, a dog typically runs out, for, out of the way of a car. It sees a car coming and it runs out of the way. Have you ever had your grass run out of the way of the mower? No, a, a plant can't sense that. Uh, an animal has a greater sense of reality. Well, what's the difference between an animal and a human? Humans have a greater sense of reality. Uh, humans actually sense right and wrong. That's why our legal system would never actually hold an animal morally culpable for eating and killing another animal, for example. But we, we would hold a human responsible for eating and killing an, another human. You, you, you see what I'm saying? There, there, there's a, a greater sense of, of reality. There's a greater sense of what's going on around them. So what's the million-dollar question? The million-dollar question is, what is the difference between a born-again human and a human who's not? You know, the Bible says that the born-again human has a greater sense of reality. It doesn't mean you're a better person. It just means that you're invited into the reality of what's going on in the world. That the Bible uses the term that a veil has been taking off, taken off your eyes. That you actually look at the world and you see, you see colors that you didn't see before. You see dynamics that you didn't see before. The world starts to make sense in light of the, what God has told us about what is going on. One of the most important things that this new view of reality brings is a new sense of who we really are. 
So if the church is given this task, there's this mission to take the gospel around the world, but until we're not ready to do that until the Spirit makes us alive, until the Spirit comes into our life and makes us new, brings us to spiritual life. Once that spiritual life happens, one incredible thing is that we are given a new sense of who we actually are. So the church's task is actually, in a sense, preceded by the church's identity. Consider this statement. Christianity is not first about what you do, but about who you are. Did you know that? Did you know that that, that Christianity fundamentally, ultimately, is not about what you do? It is about who you are. And then what you do flows from who you are. We do what we do because of who we are. The, The Bible is saying this, that in Jesus, we do who we are, not we are what we do. If you meet someone new today, my bet is, within three questions, they ask you, so what do you do? Right? That's, that's very common in our culture. We're trying to get to know somebody, and you want to know what they do. It's a legitimate question. I ask it all the time. It's understandable. It's not, not wrong. But when we think about the reality of what Christ is doing in us, there's a right way. Jeff Vanderstelp is the one who says it. We do who we are. It's our identity first, and from that identity comes our actions. Being precedes doing. Be before do. And this is honestly, this is a core reason why we are doing the prodigal God study. Is, uh, it's, it's typical and it's, it's, it's important for community groups to be asking, what areas do I need to grow in? What, what, what are you trying to work on in your life? And, and this sense of like, I want to obey God. I want to do. I, you know, th- that's, that's right and good. But we thought, what if we start off with some content that reminds us of who we actually are, of what this gospel actually does to us. Be before do. If you look at Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, the direction is inside out. It's not the other way around. It's not outside in. Christianity is not something that we put on like a shirt. And it's like something you put on from the outside. You know, it's, it's like you're painting it on yourself or pasting it on yourself. No, no. The Bible says it's from the inside out that you're being transformed from the inside out. And boy, does the gospel offer us clarity on who we are if we have been made new by faith in Jesus. Who we are produces action. Who we are leads to what we do, but don't get it backwards. Fight to not get it backwards. You know, the apostle Paul, uh, he, he loved to talk about this reality that it's like that gr- grace is scandalous, faith is scandalous, and it's not about what you do. It's the rescue of God, and it's this incredible reality that God saves us in spite of ourselves. And a lot of people like to go over to James, the book of James, and think that James and Paul are in a fight because James says faith without works is dead. And you say, okay, now it sounds like they've got different ideas. Paul says that God saves us in spite of ourselves. It's all grace. And James says, no, faith without works is dead. They're not saying different, something different at all. They're just simply talking about it in different ways. Paul is saying, this is a stunner. This is a scandal. God saves us in spite of us. God's all, there are this whole big pile of all of these ways in which we've rebelled against God, and God will save us in spite of all that. It's crazy. 
And then James comes along and says, okay, but, but how do you know if you've actually put your faith in Jesus? Well, one of the ways that you know that you've put your faith in Jesus is what is produced. He, see, think, of a, think of a fruit tree, an apple tree. It's apple season. Th- think of an apple tree. The apples on the tree don't make the tree alive. The apples on the tree just show the tree to be alive. The apples prove that the tree is alive. Life came first. The apples came later. James is simply saying, how do you know? We are really good self-deceivers. I'm really good at lying to myself. I'm really good at being confused. So James says, I have an idea for you. See what the fruit is. See what it produces. He's not saying if you get an apple, then that makes the tree alive. He's saying a tree that's truly alive will actually produce apples. And so this, this beautiful picture of be before do. Yes, the Christian is, is about action. Yes, the Christian is about doing. But it's based on who we are, and we don't want to get that backwards. Well, over the years, there's a whole bunch of Bible teachers that have found uh, it helpful uh, to identify kind of identities, plural. Like, who is it that Jesus makes us? How is it a way that we can communicate that or express that? And almost always, they show up in a list of five, and the words that are used sometimes change here or there over the course of decades or centuries. Uh, But there's generally five identities that that come to light in regard to a, a kind of a holistic way of understanding who we are after the Spirit has made us alive. And those five identities that we want to lean into, uh, here's how we're going to communicate them for this next next chapter of our church. Worshippers, witnesses, family, servants, stewards. Those five identities. Worshippers, witnesses, family, servants, and stewards. Let's, Let's see how this is true. We'll walk through each of them. So first, worshippers. Human beings are worshipers. Have you noticed that? It comes real natural to us. It's, uh, you know, football's only a month old right now, and I see a lot of worship going on in regard to, in regard to football, and it might be coming out of my own mouth. Um, and it's, it's easy for us. It's easy for us to, to, to worship things. The, the primary question, though, is what are you worshiping? You know, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 show us that human beings were created to worship the God of heaven. But Genesis 3 shows us that sin broke that. Before Genesis 3, mankind worshiped the God of heaven and was in perfect relationship with that God. Genesis 3 comes along and everything goes horribly sideways. Uh, Various Bible scholars over the years have referred to the heart, and this is helpful for me, to think of your heart as an arrow. And in the garden, when Adam and Eve walked with God, that arrow was pointed directly to the God of heaven and it never wavered. When sin came in, it's like sin broke the compass. And now the arrow of our heart is wooed and tempted to, to, to fly all over the place, to, to point over there and to point over there, sometimes within the matter of minutes. It sporadically goes all over the place. There, there's a, an author named James K.A. Smith who over the last few years has written about this quite a bit. And he's, he's just so helpful. He's, you, you are what you love. He says, we, we love all the time. We worship all the time. And the arrow of our heart is uh, pointing towards all of these different offerings that our culture puts in front of us. And yet we were designed, we were made for that arrow to be pointed 
at the God of heaven. Well, the good news is that when you trust Christ to make your heart new and bring you back to God, that arrow's orientation towards God is restored. That's what the Bible says, that we're actually reconciled to God. And now in a right relationship with God, that arrow can actually rightly point to him. We, we see it as our best place, as, as the most rightful way in which we see ourselves and see the world is our affections aligned with the God of heaven. So who are we? Well, if you've run to Christ, you, we are people whose affections have been reordered towards the God of heaven. St. Augustine in the fourth century was talking like this, ta talking about this reality of, of disordered loves. And when we are reconciled to God through Christ, our loves get reordered. We, we now recognize that this is right and true and good. And it's a longing of our hearts to experience that. But Jesus is the one who makes it true. Jesus is the one who reorders our loves, reorders our affections. It gives you eyes to see the glory of God. Have you, maybe, maybe, maybe there was a point in time in your life where you weren't a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're not a follower of Jesus now. And you see people sing about him. You see people open up their Bible every day. You see people like going to Bible studies or going to community groups. And you look at it and you're like, I don't get it. I don't get it. You see, what, what new life in Christ does is it gives you eyes to see that. The Bible loves this word awe, this sense of like being stunned by the glory and goodness of God. And Jesus gives that kind of perspective. He reorders our affections. So that's who we are. Then what's the overflow? What, what do we do? Well, then we're people who are invested in knowing, loving, and obeying God. And so, yeah, there's action. You bet there's action. There's something that grows up out of the soil of being a worshiper, of having our hearts reordered, of having that arrow pointed at the God of heaven. You bet there's action. But that action is the overflow of what Jesus has done in our life. If you were to look at our passage today, Acts chapter 2, and if you were just to survey through those verses, in verse 42, remember, the Spirit of God shows up and indwells his people, and immediately... They start living this stuff out. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to what? To the teaching. They, they devoted themselves. That, that's this sense of commitment, investment. They saw it as valuable and good. Why? why? Why were they so invested in the teaching? Because their hearts had been reordered. In verse 43, it talks about them having awe. In verse 44, it talks about them believing. In verse 47, it says they were all praising God. So the Spirit shows up at the beginning of the chapter, and by the end of the chapter, we see God's people living as worshipers, people whose hearts have been reordered, and now it's bubbling out of them. And I like using the ING endings here, knowing, loving, obeying, because you know, the, the ING ending, that suffix, it, it, it communicates action or like process. It's inviting us into a dynamic world, not a static world. This is an ongoing journey of worshiping. It's an ongoing journey of, of knowing or learning who God is. So many questions that we have. And it's a, it's a lifelong pursuit. It's actually an eternity-long pursuit. I do not believe that when we die, we know everything about God. I think, it's, I think for all of eternity, there's going to be new things that we're exploring and learning about who God is. Loving, obeying. These are ongoing kind of like engagement 
words that invite us into a journey with Jesus. And boy, am I thankful that it'll never get old, never get stale. So worshipers, second, witnesses. Yeah, I, I like this word in a lot of ways, but, but an easy way to apply it would be this. Um, about a year ago, I was driving um, up, a, up a road, a side road, and an accident happened seconds, uh, within seconds of me being there. I wasn't involved in the accident, but a cyclist was, was hit by a car. And when, maybe you've been involved in something similar where you've, you've been part of a, a traumatic moment, something that's like a car accident or, or a situation like that. If that, court, if that would have gone to court, you know, the, the police officers took my information, took my phone number and all those things. If that would have gone to court, I could have easily been called in as a witness. I would have come into court and the lawyers would have asked me, what did you see? What did you experience? You're asked to come into the courtroom and to recount what happened. What did you see? What, what did you experience? You see, the, the reason that Christians have cared about sharing the gospel all around the world is because we have seen something, something that has changed us. That makes us witnesses. Who, who are we? We are people who have witnessed Jesus' work in us. And when you've experienced that reality, now the sense of actually sharing it with other people, that, that becomes logical. Like, that makes sense. This, this overflow of revealing the gospel in word and deed, locally and globally, wanting everybody to see it and hear it, everybody wanting to, 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 to be touched by it, to, to experience it. If you, if you look at Acts chapter 2, in verse, in verse 47, it says, The Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. The Spirit comes at the beginning of the chapter, and by the end of the chapter, they are telling everybody they know about who this Jesus is. And every day, God is adding to their number those who are responding to that good news. They're out there as witnesses. They are out there sharing the good news. Now, missions work. You know, international missions work especially. The idea of us being a, a sending church where there's missionaries that we actually financially help go to the other parts of the world so that they can declare the message of the gospel. You know, that, that, that work is so important, and it has had a long track record in the church. But it has also taken a beating. There's been a lot of criticism of international missions, a lot of concerns about it being imperialistic, about showing up in other lands and trying to convince foreign people that they should believe in our God or they should believe our message. Maybe you've heard some of those criticisms. Now, I, I can tell you that um, you know, international missions has not always been done super well. There, there are some really bad examples of the way that Christians have tried to take the gospel to other cultures. But I also want to consider the fact that a good bit of that criticism, not all of it, but a good bit of that criticism that I've heard is from people who themselves are not actually Christians. And they look at this, this, this work of the local church taking the gospel to foreign lands and they think it looks imperialistic. They think it looks like you're trying to impose something on another group, people group. But guess what? If they're not a Christian, they're not actually witnesses. And if they're not witnesses, then it makes all the sense in the world that they would look at this and say, how dare you go try to impose your beliefs on someone else? But if you've witnessed this, if you've actually seen this work, if you've seen Jesus bring your life 
uh, your heart to life? And you recognize that Jesus doesn't want to change your clothes or your food or your culture. He wants to change you. He actually wants to make you the full you. He wants to make you everything you were designed to be. You know, the Bible tells us that in the eternal kingdom, there's going to be languages and tribes. That stuff doesn't get wiped out. I actually think that skin color and language and music differences, all, those things are all beautiful reflections of God's creativity. That stuff doesn't get wiped out. It gets made whole. And so as, as we take the gospel around the world, we're not trying to kill someone's culture. We're trying to actually invite them into what they were designed for, just like we were invited into what we were designed for. This beautiful picture of us reconnected to the God who made us. We are witnesses, uh, we are witnesses first. If it didn't happen to you, then you literally have nothing to go witness about. But if it's happened to you, then it's all we're being asked to do is to just, can I tell you what Jesus did to me? Can I tell you about this good news? There's also passages in the Bible that make it pretty clear that, that uh, in, in, in 1 Peter, for example, where people were getting asked, hey, Matt, tell me about the joy that's in your heart. Hey, Matt, tell me about what's going on in your life and that we should be ready to give an answer. But that's, that, that's actually people observing us and seeing us live this different life and then we're ready to respond when someone says, hey, what's happened to you? What have you experienced that has so changed you? This is all in that category of being willing witnesses to the work of Jesus in our life. Third, we'll move a little quicker now. Family. If you have trusted Jesus to save you and the spirit of God has now made your heart new, then boy, do I have some good news for you. Who are we? We are people who have been adopted by our heavenly father. We are deeply known and fully loved. That means that we are sons and daughters of the king of heaven and that we have you know, sometimes more brothers and sisters than we want, but we have tons and tons of brothers and sisters. And the Bible actually seems to make the case that the number one way that we should see each other as the people of God is brothers and sisters. The first way is not Matt's, Matt's my pastor. The first way is Matt's my brother. The, the, the first way is not that person is my community group leader. The first, the first way is that's my brother or that's my sister. That, that, that this familial, this sibling uh, mentality should saturate the church. And it's all rooted in this fact that we have been made sons and daughters of the king. And if you've come to Jesus, you have been too. Which if you're a son of the king and I'm a son of the king, that means we're siblings. And it's this beautiful picture of family. You know, and we're, we're, we're deeply known and we're fully loved. Man, I love this idea. Everybody wants to be known and everybody wants to be loved. But we are so scared that if someone truly knew us, there is no way that they would love us. And yet the message of the gospel is that the God of heaven knows you better than you. And yet he loves you to the ends of the earth and back. That's the kind of relationship that he's welcoming you into. You have been adopted into the family and you are fully known and fully loved at the exact same time. And if you thought somebody couldn't really know you and still love you, boy, the gospel is really, really good news, isn't it? What's the overflow of that? The overflow is engaging deeply with the community of faith. 
that, that this is why it's a track record for the church over the two, these last 2,000 years. The people of God gathering together, gathering together in large group settings like this on Sunday mornings to, to recognize the glory and goodness of God. You know, we gather on Sundays because Jesus rose again on a Sunday. <laughs> That's why it started. The, the day of worship for the people of God used to be Saturday. It changed to Sundays when Jesus rose on a Sunday. And so the people of God gathering together to be together as a spiritual family, like this, this is a 2,000-year track record. Look at Acts chapter 2. In verse 42, it uses the word fellowship. That's the first of 20 times that that word shows up in the New Testament. And it's the Greek word koinonia. And it means like intimate fellowship. It means oneness. It means being united in purpose. Verse 44, it talks about them being together. In verse 46, it says they were breaking bread in their homes. If you were to go through the rest of the New Testament, there's like 40 different one another commands where God, it, through, the, through the writers of the Bible, through the writers of the New Testament, he looks at his people and he says, here's how I want you to live together. And he, and he talks one another, love one another, care for one another. All, all the one another's. This picture of being engaged deeply in the community of faith has a 2,000-year track record, and it is rooted in not us needing friends, not first and foremost. It's rooted in us being adopted into the family. And now we're sons and daughters of the king. We are brothers and sisters of each other. We respond to our restored relationship with God by embracing his people. It's one of the reasons why we do community groups. We think that Sundays are beautiful. We do not think that Sundays are sufficient. We think that you need to have a people, group of people around you who know you and love you, who, who know your name and care about the fact that you're not there. Sunday mornings, it's really hard to do that. A group of 10 or 12 people on a Tuesday night, it's a lot easier to do that. And we think it's pretty important. Fourth, servants. Think about what Jesus has done for you. Think about the what Jesus has done for you. Who, who, who are we? We are people who have already been served in the only way that really matters. What Jesus Christ did for you, what Jesus Christ did for me when he came to this earth and took on a human body, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, went to the grave, and then gloriously rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and all of our enemies. Him doing that for us is serving us in the only way that really matters. That is the one thing that I desperately needed somebody to do for me. And there was only one person that could do it. And guess what? He wanted to do it. You have been served in the only way that matters. And, and so what's the overflow then? I mean, this, this invites us to change the way that we see other people. G Jesus said that he came to be served. Not, uh, he, he did not come to be served. He came to serve. And we're the primary recipi recipients of that. Who did Jesus come to serve? He came to serve us by rescuing us back to God, by providing the one way that we could be reconciled to God. And so what does this do to us? Well, the overflow is that we are seeking the shalom of our church, of our city, of our world. And that word shalom means peace, but it's way bigger than that. Talk about it a little bit next week, but it's just talking about everything being right, that we care about everything being right. So we jump into the places that need help. We jump into the places where things aren't right. We have been served, and so now we are free to go serve. Again, look at Acts chapter 2. In verse 45, it says they were distributing to all as any had need. They were serving the community. Not just Christians. Yes, Christians, but not just Christians. 
They were serving the community. And in verse 47, it says that they had favor with all the people. The community saw it. The community experienced these Christians open-handedly serving their, 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 their neighbors. And it's a beautiful thing to observe. It's first something we receive. We have been served. And then it's something that we can give. We serve others. The last identity is this identity of, of steward. What is a steward? A steward is one who recognizes that they are not an owner. That, that, that's the fundamental idea, is that if you're a steward, it means you've been given something, and now it's your job to, to manage it, to, to steward it, to figure out how to use it appropriately. They've been given something, it's been entrusted to them, and now the question is, how are you going to use it? Now, you might be here and say, I don't, I, like, everything I have, I got. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. I pull myself up by my bootstraps. Like, I am where I am because of my effort. Well, I can, I can understand why you might say that. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is writing to that local church, and he says to them, I think it's verse 7, what do you have that you have not been given? And it's a rhetorical question. And, and what Paul's saying is this. It's, it's, God, God is the source of all gifts, of all good things. Everything you've got, you've got because God gave you, gave you the ability to get it. Because God gave you the ability to do it. So, some gifts you'll, you'll experience in your life, and it's like crystal clear, that was not for me. A few years ago, someone gave me a car. It was, it, it, that was not for me. There's, no, there's no, not an inch of me that says I earned that car. That car was completely given. But even the things that I think I did do, the Bible is graciously inviting me to recognize that if God didn't give me the breath in my lungs, that wouldn't have happened. If God wouldn't give me the strength in my hands, that wouldn't have happened. And so stewards are people who recognize that they've been given something, it's been entrusted to them, and they're managers. So who are we? We are people who have received extravagant free gifts of grace. Then not only do you get the air in your lungs, which that's true of every human, now, not only does the sun shine on your face, that's true of every human. Not only does the rain water your grass, that's true of every human, except for people in California. That, 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 that's, that's, true, that's true for everybody. But Christians, if you have turned to Christ, if you've given your life up and recognized that Jesus is the only one that can rescue, rescue you, reconcile you to God, then you've received additional gifts of grace that actually have made you come to life, spiritual life that have reconnected you to God. And so we look at ourselves and we recognize we have received more free gifts than we could ever imagine. As good as the sun is, as good it is, as it is to live by lakes, as good as all these gifts are, there is a gift that outshines them all and is the gift of reconciliation to God that Christ has won for us. Now, what's the overflow? The overflow is that we are living generously with our relationships, our time, and our money. This looks like us managing God's gifts for God's purposes. That means I look at everything in my life and I just recognize this is a gift of God. So that means minutes. That means relationships, people. It means dollars. It means material goods. Everything you've got in your hands is a gift from God. And we're called to be stewards of it, to manage it for the, for the good of the world. And steward and servant kind of partner well together. This sense of we recognize we have these gifts and we want to steward them well. And then we look around us and say, who, who is in need? 
Who is it that, is, that could benefit from these resources that God has put in my hands? Again, look at Acts chapter 2. In verse 45, it says that they sold their possessions and their belongings, and they distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And in verse 46, it talks about them having a generous spirit. There's this open-handedness, this willing to, to share and to be part of using their gifts to help other people. When your eyes are open to the new reality of life, restored to God, and a future in a remade world, boy, does that change the way you look at your resources. You know, the Bible talks about this life as being a vapor. And there's parables that Jesus tells about wealthy people, like piling up stuff in the barns. And the, the, you know, part of the, the, the consideration there is like, you, you, can, you can have a lot of money, and the Bible doesn't think that that's a bad idea. There's rich people in the Bible, and they're not told that they, they can't, you can't be rich. Being rich isn't the problem. The, the question is, do you, do you recognize the story that you're in? Do you recognize that your life goes by in a vapor? Do you recognize that everything you have is a gift from God? Do you recognize that you're part of this mission that God has in the world to get the gospel into the hearts of every person in this room and around the globe? We get to be part of that. We get to be stewards of that. And it's, and it's dollars, but it's not just dollars. It's the way I use my time. It's the way I use my relationships. How do I invest my life in the things that actually really matter? So worshipers, witness, family, servants, stewards. You, know, you could use this list as a sort of diagnostic. You, know, you could walk back through these five, and you could first, you could ask yourself, how well have I received this? How well have I realized that, 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 that I am a worshiper? that I am a witness, that I am, a, a, that I am part of a family, that I am a servant, that I am a steward. And, and then you could turn it outward and you could ask the question of how well have I responded to those realities? Does my life reveal the fact that I think of myself as a worshiper? Does, does my, you know, what bubbles up from how I understand my identity? It leads to action, but not first. Be before do. Maybe you need to grow in all five. But it might be best to grab one, maybe two, and dive into it. Ask God what, what he might want to do in that area of your life, how he might want to reshape you. Let God continue the work of changing you from the inside out. So many gifts, so much to celebrate. So as we come to the table, you know, there's all kinds of different postures that you can come to the table, to the communion table with. And there's, there's a lot of beautiful ones. Today, I want to invite you to come with a heart of gratitude. I want you to come, and as you come to this table, I want you to recognize that you have way more gifts than you could have imagined, that God has been so generous to you. Even if you look and say, I got all these needs. Listen, there's such a beautiful invitation to, to see what you do have. There's an old song, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. There's this sense in which it's like the people of God have a long track record of having gratitude because we recognize that we have so much more than we deserve. And so as you come to the table today, you, 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 I want to invite you into that. But the ultimate gift is the gift of Christ for you. And listen, that is available to every one of us in this room. That, that, that's not related to a bank account or your, your coming paycheck or how many friends you have or what kind of a house you own. No way. The best gift of all is wide open, free, right here this morning. All you need is need. All you have to do is come, see him as the one who can reconcile you to God. So as you come and take the bread and the cup, I invite you to come with a heart of gratitude. If our servants will please come, let's pray.
God, thank you for uh, this, this big, robust, holistic picture of what a follower of Jesus is, a worshiper, a witness, a member of the family, a servant, a steward, one who has been given so much, one who has been changed from the inside out. So God, would you, would you help us to grab hold of that first, the being, the inside reality, the transformation that you have so graciously granted? But then God, would you, would you help us to ask the questions just like James invites us to? Faith without works is dead. God, if there's no fruit, then that, that's a sign of something being wrong. So would you first help us to grab onto what we've received? And then would you help us to, to, to work on the aspects of what it looks like to give? What it looks like to, to let those things loose in our life in the circle around us. Thank you for this good news and for your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.